0: As always, we like to invite God to speak to us through his word. This is our theme prayer for the year. Let's pray this together. Oh, Lord, our God, you've chosen to make yourself known through your creation, your word, your son and your spirit. Now reveal your glory to us and through us, the church. Speak to us, form us, lead us, dwell in us. Teach us today how to love as Jesus loves, to welcome the stranger, heal the sick, and care for the poor, to bear good news, build bridges, and bring your people home. For Christ in us is the hope of glory. May your perfect will prevail in us this day. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Continuing our series called Love Where You Live. And we launched this campaign in order to reintroduce our church to our neighborhood because we are a much different church than we were 10 years ago. Raise your hand if you've been here less than five years. Less than five years. And raise them really high. And those of you who've been here longer than that, look around and see how many new people God has brought into our family in the last while. Isn't that awesome? And of course, some of our people have gone over to our Roland Heights campus uh, to help kind of re-energize that location. I'm really happy for that. But we are a much different church than we were 10 years ago. We are multi-site. We are multi-ethnic, multilingual. We're a church that celebrates diversity. We are far more plugged into our community than ever before. We've embraced our God-given mandate to preach the gospel uh, to uh, all humanity. We have revived our missions program. When I came to this church 13 years ago, no one could remember the last time we had been on a short-term missions trip. It had been a long, long time, and since that time, we've gone on several of them. Uh, our preschool—raise your hand if you're from the preschool. Preschool, woo! Right? All right, I see you back there, George. Um, we uh, our, our our school is, is overflowing; it's at capacity. We draw families from all over West San Gabriel Valley. Uh, we, but here's the most important thing: we have gone from being a very loving but inward-facing church made up primarily of commuters to uh, being an outward-facing church with a very strong local membership and presence. And and see, the thing is, most of our neighbors um, have no idea who we are today as a church, and so we want to reintroduce ourselves to our community. And we believe we're called to be a river church, uh, so our primary concern is not how many people we can gather here on Sundays. We are more concerned with how we are sending people into our communities as ambassadors of Jesus Monday through Saturday. And we call that living life on mission. Uh, Jesus tells us to go and make disciples. That means that this church, this place, is our base camp. This is our base camp. This is where God has stationed us. And the biblical word for church is ecclesia, which means that people who are called out for a purpose, for a mission. You've been called here to join in a mission. So we're not here to attend church, we're here to be the church. This is our, our family's base camp. We are here today to report in and uh, to receive retraining and encouragement and support to be recharged, to pray for wisdom and strength, and then we're back out there in the harvest field. Yes? Yes? So I want to share uh, just a few stories um, of how we've been doing that, how how we've been living the mission and and loving where we live. Our East LA group, Raphael over here, leads our East LA group. Um, on Thursday, they went to he and his boys uh, went to Griffith Middle School and they brought it must have been like more than hundred bucks worth of stuff of like of muffins and pastries and and uh, and juice and and uh, breakfast sandwiches, a whole bag of like breakfast san- sandwiches. It was awesome, and the teachers, when they announced it, you know, paging all the teachers, there's goodies in the office, you know, here. They all started coming out of the woodwork, and, like, it was, <laughs> it was awesome. And they all came, and they had these huge smiles. They're like, what is the occasion? And Raphael and his boys were like, nothing. You know, we just, we just want to love you. The church is doing this thing called Love Where You Live, and we love you. We live right down the street. We want to bless you this morning. Um, our Monterey Park uh, 2 group led by Tom and Sharon Yee, Uh, they uh, attended an FAA uh, Southern California Metroplex Open Forum at Langley Senior Center, and they actually met somebody who's running for uh, city council. They also gathered in uh, someone's home and wrote Valentine's cards for our angel tree kids. Those are kids from our community whose parents are incarcerated. Our Montebello group, uh, led by Janelle and Monique, attended a Montebello traffic commissioner's meeting. How many of you have ever been to a traffic commissioner's meeting? Um, But they went, and they made a connection with uh, one of the traffic commissioners and a member of the Lions Club, got to meet some of the people in the neighborhood. Uh, Three of our groups visited local police stations um, to express their appreciation for the officers. They prayed over them. They brought food for them. Our MPCS community group, uh, like 70 students and their families showed up yesterday at the fire station down by City Hall, and they spent time bonding over a picnic. It was awesome. Uh, our youth group, as John told you, went down to downtown Disney and blessed some youth with special needs. Um, Fred Sorosso, uh hosted a neighborhood watch meeting at his home over in uh, Whittier and La Habra. Uh, one of our groups over there went to a local park. And what they did was they set up this, t- this long table... With all of these uh, snacks and beverages, they had Starbucks coffee, those little frappuccino things that are like really expensive but really tasty. Uh, they had water and uh, Panera bread bagels and, and all bananas and they had uh, doggy treats. Because a lot of people walk their dogs in the park. And so every time somebody came by with a the dog, they said, hey, would you, what's your doggie's name? Would, you, would he like a treat? And they had all these amazing conversations. Four people from that community said, hey, we want to visit your church. You know, It's just amazing uh, conversations. They were really touched by that. Uh, Victor and Adaya Bagazo from our Roland Heights campus went to Mexico. They helped put ele- install electricity in an orphanage that we support down there. Three families who live on the same block in Hacienda Heights had a block party. And 45 people showed up. Wow. And only eight of them were from our church. Everyone else's neighbors on that block. And they all got together like, this is awesome. How come we don't know each other? We should do this more often. It's amazing. They all said, let's do this again. We want a strong sense of community. This all happened in two weeks, guys. We still got four weeks to go. Isn't that awesome? Awesome. Now, things are going to turn serious for a moment. Because I want to turn the spotlight on one group of our Trinity peeps in particular. Last Wednesday, uh, the Monterey Park City Council held a special meeting to discuss whether or not we should become a sanctuary city. Um, Now, how did that come about? Um, uh, I got a phone call from Teresa Real Sebastian, who's our vice mayor, um, and she had been reading some of my personal Facebook posts. I have some pretty strong feelings about uh, how we treat refugees. Um, And she knew that this was a great uh, issue of great concern to me, and so she said, hey, um, I am bringing a resolution before city council to declare Monterey Park as a sanctuary city. Uh, Could you help spread the word? Just get the word out. Uh, And she wanted participation from the community in the dialogue. Now, a little bit of background. There are more than 80 cities uh, and counties in California that identify as sanctuary uh, uh, jurisdictions for immigrants, uh, including L.A. and San Francisco. A sanctuary city is a municipality that has adopted a policy of protecting undocumented immigrants um, by not prosecuting them for violating federal immigration laws. Okay? They, don't, they have a policy, we will not prosecute you. Now, they are not breaking the law by doing that. A lot of people have, don't understand what this means. They're not breaking the law. Um, be, they are simply choosing to leave the responsibility of prosecution with the federal government instead of using their own local resources for that purpose. Wes is a lawyer, he's nodding his head. That's good, right? Absolutely. The Supreme Court made it clear in 2012 that the federal government has absolute power to enforce immigration laws. State and local governments can voluntarily cooperate with federal enforcement efforts or they can choose to limit their cooperation. That is their right. Okay, so we're not doing anything illegal by saying we will not prosecute undocumented immigrants. We're going to leave that in the hands of the federal government. And this is an important issue for us, because we are a city of immigrants. Monterey Park's population is about 61,500 people. Over half of those, more than 32,000 of those, are foreign-born, i.e., immigrants. Half of our population is immigrants, and many of them are undocumented. 67% 67% of the population in this city is of Asian descent, 27% are of Hispanic origin. How many of us? How many of you are either an immigrant or the child of an immigrant? Raise your hand. Re- really high. Look around, right? And maybe if you if your parents weren't immigrants, maybe your grandparents were. So we all are part of part of this, right? So here's what happened at the meeting. Teresa Real Sebastian called me up. She said, can you bring people over? I said, sure, I'll spread the word. It was only like 24 hours before the meeting. There wasn't much time. But I did what I could. And 10 people, 10 people from the community showed up. And eight of them were from our church. If we had not shown up, there would have only been two residents speaking on behalf of our entire city as our council members debated a decision that would impact Thousands of people. And so here's what happened. After they they talked for a little bit, they said to those in attendance, does anyone have any comments? And Nancy Arcuri, I'm quoting her by name because she's on record as saying this. Nancy Arcuri, the editor and publisher of a local newspaper called The Citizen's Voice, she voiced her strong opposition to the proposal and she said, it's going to put our residents in danger. This is what she said. We will be protecting criminals who will steal and rape and kill us because they hate our American freedoms. Now, imagine you are a member of our church and you're sitting there and you hear this woman say this. What would you have done? Would you let that lie? Do you agree? Would you speak up? What would you do? Would you just pray? Well, I happened to be speaking at UC Riverside to a group of students that night, so I couldn't make the meeting. But my wife went. And you know my wife, right? (laughs) At first, nobody said anything. I don't know if they were stunned or if they lacked the courage to speak. But Christine, my wife, bless her heart, she spoke up, she stood up, she spoke up, and she reminded Nancy and the council that immigrants are people. And they are our friends and our family members. They are our neighbors, they are our co-workers, they are our church members. We have undocumented immigrants in our church. And she openly expressed her personal support for the proposal. She was speaking on behalf of herself, but the paper quoted her speaking for the whole church. So it looks like Trinity Church says we should become a Trent sanctuary city. Um, I'm okay with that. Um, but here's what happened afterwards on social media. This news got out, people started going online, posting their comments. Terry Harper. I'm quoting him because he put his name out there, right? And I believe when you say something, you should have the courage to put your name to it, right? I don't like anonymous comments. Put your name to it, right? So Terry Harper said this, if we become a sanctuary city when an illegal murders another citizen like they did to my brother, it's personal for him then they won't have to run back to Mexico and change their name. They'll just stay at home and watch Telemundo and come out just in time to watch the little girls get off the bus. He said, I'll bet this mayor lives in a place that's pretty well insulated from reality. Now, it is tragic that Terry's brother was murdered. But his comments, like Nancy's, I think, reflect the deep misunderstanding of what it means to be a sanctuary city and a spirit of racism and fear. Gilbert Verity said this, he said, Yeah, they canceled Monterey Park Play Days, which is not true. We still have it. He said, uh, They called it culturally irrelevant, and then they closed down Garvey Avenue for some kind of Chinese holiday? No, these people, these people, refuse to assimilate to American culture. Cu- culture. If your country is so great, why did you leave it? Go home if you miss it so much. Why not embrace the country that gives you life and freedom and nourishment, education, and a real future? Why embrace a country that only offers poverty and starvation and virtual slavery? I was here when you first showed up. You have made zero effort. Go home. If you want to feel depressed, (laughs) go on Facebook and read comments like that. What is our... What is our responsibility as Christians when we hear those kinds of comments? How do we respond as ambassadors of God? Let's talk today about what the Bible says about foreigners. Let's start by asking how does... Well, before that, let's start by asking how does the Bible define true religion? True religion, okay? How does God... Evaluate the authenticity of your faith. Well, James 1 says this. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. I mean, just that alone. We could talk about that all day, right? If you are a Christian, please keep a tight rein On your tongue. Because if you don't, you are deceiving yourself. Your religion is worthless. He says religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this is to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. That doesn't mean that we don't associate with the world. The problem is not that we are in the world, but sometimes the world is too much in us. And our our character begins to become tainted, right? True religion is caring for widows and orphans in their distress. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you, you know this, right? You know that God has a special heart for these two classes of people, widows and orphans. Do we all agree? Right? But there is a third group that is often lumped in with these two, and that is immigrants, immigrants, foreigners, also called aliens or sojourners. Deuteronomy 10:18 says that God defends the cause of the fatherless, there's the orphan and the widow, and loves the alien. Have, did you miss that? Have you missed that before in the Bible? Because we all hear, okay, widows and orphans got it, and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. Psalm 146:9, "The Lord watches over the alien, this time it comes first and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the way of the wicked. In Ezekiel, the rulers of Israel are condemned by God for having oppressed the alien and mistreating the fatherless and the widow. These three groups of people are linked constantly throughout the Old Testament. The widow, the orphan, the alien. In fact, theologian Orlando Espen says, welcoming the stranger, or the immigrant in today's terms, is the most often repeated commandment in the scriptures with the exception of the imperative to worship the one God. Worship God and him only is number one. Number two, the most often repeated command, welcome the stranger. And so he says, whatever the cause of immigration today, there can be no doubt as to where the church must stand when it comes to defending the immigrant. In Deuteronomy 24, 17, we are told, do not deprive the alien or the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge, as collateral. He said, if, if you loan money to a widow, uh, don't take her cloak as collateral because she, she'll need that. It's cold at night, right? So our God is a God of justice, and we are called to be a people who act justly. Micah 6:8 says, what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, Right? to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Now, when we think of justice, what do you think of? We often think of punishment, right, for wrongdoing. A man is sentenced to prison for committing a crime. So we say, what do we say? Justice Justice was done. Justice was served, right? We think of punishment. Here's what Tim Keller, uh, pastor in New York and theologian says. He says, the Hebrew word for justice, which is mishpat, occurs in its various forms more than 200 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. Its most basic meaning is to treat people equitably. It means acquitting or punishing every person on the merits of the case, regardless of race or social status. And That's why the, the uh, Justice, Lady Justice, he has the blindfold, right? Regardless of race or social status. Anyone who does the same wrong should be given the same penalty. Do you think that our justice system is, is just? Do you think every person who commits the same crime receives the same penalty? Or do you think some, there's possibly some inequity there? Right. But, he says, mishpat means more than the punishment of wrongdoing. It also means giving people their rights. Here's an example. Deuteronomy 18 directs that the priests of their tabernacle should be supported by a certain percentage of people's income. And this support, this financial support, is described as the priest's mishpat, which means their due or their right. Mishpat is giving people what they are due, whether it is punishment or protection or care. And he says, this is why if you look at every place the word is used in the Old Testament, several classes of persons continually come up over and over again, Mishpat describes taking up the cause of widows and orphans and immigrants and the poor. There's a fourth class of people. The poor, and these are, have been called the quartet of the vulnerable. He says, in pre-modern agrarian societies, these four groups, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the poor, had no social power. They lived at subsistence level and were only days from starvation If there was any famine or invasion or even minor social unrest, today this quartet would be expanded to include the refugee, the migrant worker, the homeless, many single parents and elderly people. He says, the mishpat or justness of a society, according to the Bible, is evaluated by how it treats widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. Any neglect shown to the needs of the members of this quartet is not called merely a lack of mercy or charity, but a violation of justice, of mishpat. God loves and defends those with the least economic and social power, and so should we. That is what it means to do justice. Who are the people in our society who have the least economic and the least social power? God cares about those people, and He calls us to do justice, right? Justice is more than punishing wrongdoers. It is ensuring that all people receive the protection and care that they are due as image bearers of God. And there are times when our man-made laws fail to deliver true justice. They are unjust. And when that is the case, we have, in the words of Martin Luther King Jr., a moral responsibility to change or challenge those laws yes Yes. let's take a look at Zechariah 7 9 to 14 if you want to follow in your Bibles you're more than welcome to Zechariah 7 19 in the Old Testament the word of the Lord came to Zechariah and this is what the Lord Almighty said administer true justice everybody say administer true justice Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. And then, Zechariah writes, but they refused to pay attention. Stubbornly, they turned their backs and covered their ears. And they made their hearts as hard as flint, and would not listen to the law or the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by His Spirit through the earlier prophets. And so the Lord Almighty was very angry. <laughs> when I called, they did not listen. So when they called, I would not listen, says the Lord Almighty. I scattered them with the world and among all the nations where they were, where they were strangers. Brought them into exile. And the land that they left behind them was so desolate that no one traveled through it. This is how they made the pleasant land desolate. Here's the thing. When we, don't miss this, when we fail to administer true justice, when foreigners are mistreated and the vulnerable are not protected, God says he will turn his face from us. And he will not listen to our prayers. In fact, he will scatter us to humble us so that we will identify with people in distress. And the land, think about our country, the land which was once pleasant and good will become barren and desolate if we fail to do justice. Thomas Jefferson is quoted as saying, we don't know if he actually said this, but he's quoted as saying, when injustice becomes law, resistance Becomes duty. Why why am I so passionate about this? Because this is what's been happening. A lot of people in my circles, including many Christians, talk about immigrants as if they are a nuisance, as if they are a burden, even a threat. They're taking our jobs, they're a drain on the system, they're thieves, they're rapists. They're murderers. The scriptures speak about immigrants in compassionate terms, as people to be welcomed and cared for and defended and loved. And to those who would say, would insist, and let me speak to that group. To those who insist, it's, you know, it's tragic. They're going to say it's tragic that, that people are running from violence and persecution. But we have to protect ourselves, Right? I I know people are desperate, but we have laws. And we should only allow people into our country who share our values. Now, who does that remind you of in the Bible? Can you think of anyone in the Bible who was rebuked for putting their own safety and comfort before people in need? Can you think of anybody in the Bible who put strict obedience to the law before the immediate needs of the sick and the poor and the vulnerable? Can you think of anyone in the Bible who refused to help people outside their own circles because they were afraid of being contaminated? Doesn't that sound awfully like the religious leaders of Jesus' day? Doesn't that sound like the Pharisees? In contrast, who touched the leper? Who ate with sinners? Who healed on the Sabbath? Who went against the laws of the Pharisees? Who went against that? in order to heal somebody? Who endured torture and death for the sake of his enemies? Jesus. Who calls us then to pick up our crosses and follow his example? Jesus. Last September, Donald Trump Jr., not our president, but his son, tweeted a graphic uh, for which he received quite a bit of criticism. And it likens Syrian, refugee, Syrian refugees to Skittles. And he tweeted, this image says it all. Let's end the politically correct agenda that doesn't put America first. If I had a bowl of Skittles and I told you that just three would kill you, would you take a handful? That's our Syrian refugee problem. The implication is that, yes, most of them are coming in, but some of them are bad. And therefore, you wouldn't. Take a handful, would you? We shouldn't let any of them in. That's our refugee problem. To which Wrigley, the company that makes Skittles, responded, (laughs) Skittles are candy. Refugees are people. We don't feel it's an appropriate analogy. Gets better. Eli Bosnick, who is a comedian and actor, went a step further with this Facebook post. In his imaginary conversation, if I gave you a bowl of skittles and three of them were poisoned, would you still eat them? Well, are the other skittles human lives? What? Like, like, is there a good chance, a really good chance, that I would be saving somebody from a war zone and probably be their life if I ate a skittle? Well. Sure, but the point, I would eat all the Skittles. Okay, but the point, I would gorge myself on Skittles. I would eat every single Skittle, every single effing Skittle I could find. I would stuff myself with Skittles. And when I found the poison Skittle and I died... I would make sure to leave behind a legacy of children and of friends who also ate Skittle after Skittle until there were no Skittles to be eaten. And each person who found the poison Skittle, we would weep for. And we would weep for their loss, for their sacrifice, and for the fact that did not let themselves succumb to fear, but made the world a better place by eating Skittles. Because your real question the one you hid behind a crappy little insensitive, dehumanizing, racist little candy metaphor, is, is my life more important than thousands upon thousands of men, women, and terrified children? And what kind of monster would think that the answer to that question is yes? Yes. Why is this analogy so powerful? Because it exposes the kind of me before you thinking that has made the world such a broken place. It is powerful because here's the thing we follow a man who did exactly what that story suggests. Jesus ate all the skittles, <laughs> Amen. and all of them were poisoned. Do you understand? He took upon himself the sins of the world, my sins and your sins, all of us. And the sins of any one of us would have been enough to put him on the cross. And Jesus comes to us and he says, you before me. And Jesus' legacy is to leave behind generation after generation of men and women who are willing to do the same. To put others before ourselves even if it puts us in harm's way. But you see, rationally, we are in no danger from refugees. An interview with the U.S. Director of Church Mobilization for World Relief, which works directly with refugees, said this. The refugee vetting process has been remarkably effective. Since 1980, when the Refugee Act was signed into law, there have been about 3 million refugees admitted into the United States. And not a single one has taken a single American life in a terrorist attack. Not one in 3 million. A Cato Institute analysis calculates the odds of an American being killed by a refugee turned terrorist at one in 3.64 billion per year. And he says, do these odds really justify a full shutdown on refugee resettlement from all countries, including countries such as the Democratic Republic of Congo, the top country of origin for refugees last year, or Burma, the top country in 2015, from which extremist Islamist terrorism is not on anyone's mind as a significant threat. he goes on to say, refusing to accept refugees from a Muslim-majority country, closes the door on one of the greatest missional opportunities we have as those not-yet-Christians, including uh, many from entirely unreached people groups, will no longer be allowed into our country in a context with full religious freedom where all are free to accept or reject the Christian gospel, to interact with them. We lose out on that. And then he says, this is so convicting to me, my friends, from an eternal perspective, do we really think that our Great Commission opportunity is worth sacrificing for a 1 in 3.6 billion chance of being killed in a terrorist attack? West Burrell's uh, sermon on New Year's Day, which was phenomenal, by the way, I listened to it later on, uh, called Imperishable. He reminded us that our faith rests on the premise that in Christ we have eternal life. We will not die. We will be resurrected. And do you realize what that means? That means for all intents and purposes, we are invincible. Christians should be the most fearless people on the planet, the most willing to give their lives away because we're invincible. We will be resurrected. And that fearlessness... Should lead to boundless compassion and generosity. My friends, when you compare Christians to the general populace, the people outside of our faith, we should be the ones who are the most courageous, the most compassionate, the most generous, not less so. That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense for us. You know, in ancient Rome, as, as, as Wes pointed out, it was common for the Romans to abandon the sick and the dying because their religion didn't teach followers to care for the helpless. One historian writes, destitute families lacking any resources to help, sometimes even abandon the chronically ill to die. In Rome, sick or elderly slaves were routinely left to waste away on Tiber Island, Unwanted children were often left to die of exposure. If a father decided that the family couldn't afford to feed another child, that child would be abandoned on the steps of the temple or in the public square. Almost without exception, defective newborns were exposed in this way. And in the third century A.D., an epidemic swept across northern Africa and Italy and the Western Empire, and as many as 5,000 people were dying in Rome. And the sick were just abandoned in the streets, and the the dead were left unburied, and the Christians were the ones who stepped in to take care of the sick and dying. And they buried the dead, and they risked getting sick, and many of them died. They ate the Skittles by taking in the sick. And this was repeated in the other early centuries of the church during other epidemics, In other words, when everybody else ran from danger, the Christians were the ones who ran in. We are a people who have nothing to lose because we have been given everything in Christ. Psalm 118 says, The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And this kind of confidence, this unshakable faith, is curious and attractive to the world. They're like, I don't get it. How can you live like that? It makes no sense. So what you know it doesn't make sense? Christians who are fearful and belligerent and uncharitable and callous in the face of suffering. It makes no sense. I mean, do we believe the gospel or not? Do we believe this gospel or not? That we have eternal life in Christ. Because if we believe it, we have no reason to fear. We can love our enemies, even at great personal risk. This is what I said last week in my sermon in Roland Heights. I said, the decision to close our borders to refugees has a direct impact on some of the most vulnerable people in the world, what is the church going to say or do? What's our response? It's not about politics. This is about our fellow human beings. They're all made in God's image. And let me say this. If we do nothing, if we say nothing, because we don't want to stir up trouble, because we think we can somehow be neutral, because we don't want to be seen as political, I promise you, that outsiders and many insiders, including millennials, they're going to conclude that the church has nothing to offer, that we are a people who have no convictions, no compassion, and no courage. We will be rightfully perceived as having no spine and no heart. Throughout the history of this nation, many people of color have been oppressed from black slavery to the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1822, Japanese internment camps in World War II. During that internment, more than 110,000 Japanese were placed in these camps. Maybe you have relatives who were in those camps or friends. 62% of them were U.S. citizens. That's our country, not that long ago. Our country has a long, ugly history of racism and bigotry and using entire groups of people as scapegoats to explain away our problems, and now it's Mexicans and Muslims. Yeah. Today's sermon was supposed to be called We Need to Get Out More. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the premise that I was planning on doing when, I pl- when we planned this series like a couple months ago was that I would talk about how important it is that we play, you know, a theology of play, to enjoy, you know, uh, God and to enjoy each other, to go out and have a good time with our neighbors, but it just seems so hollow now, given the, state, the needs that we have right now. And so this idea, we need to get out more, takes on a whole different significance, given our current climate. We need to get out more, not so we can have fun, not so we can grow our church, but because our world needs healing And because we have been given this ministry of reconciliation, because the gospel has the power to transform our world. Do we know how broken our communities are? If you you step outside the safety of this community and you begin interacting with people outside of these walls, man, you will see a level of brokenness that will take your breath away. It is clearer than ever that our mission is out there, not only in here. We need to get out more. So three things that we're going to do. Number one, let's keep getting out and meeting the people in your community. You've been doing a great job with that church. Keep it up. Get out there. Meet people. We need to love where we live. Loving where you live means loving Asians. It means loving Hispanics because those two groups make up like 90% of the people that live around us, right? It means loving your neighbor means loving undocumented immigrants. They're the people that live beside you. They don't speak English well. They're not used to our American customs. They don't obey our, our traffic laws. Right? Loving where you live means inviting your Asian and Hispanic neighbors over for dinner, not trashing them on social media. In times of let me just say this: in times of fear and bigotry, radical Christ-like hospitality towards people on the fringes of society. Radical hospitality towards people of color, the LGBT community, Muslims, undocumented immigrants, radical hospitality towards those people becomes a subversive act. It's a sign of the kingdom. Sharing joy and laughter and food and fellowship with this rich diversity of neighbors around us, regardless of their immigration status or what language they speak, socioeconomic class, religion, sexual orientation... Not only is that a decent and loving thing to do, not only does it actually make our communities safer, it's a picture of the gospel. Picture of the gospel. This is a, a picture of the group I mentioned. Um, they all live on the, three, three of our church members live on the same street. They invited their neighbors over. This is before everybody got there. But like I said, they ended up with 45 people on their street. How amazing is that? So keep getting out there. Meet the people in your, in your neighborhood. That's the first thing. Second thing is become an advocate for the four groups of people that God has a heart for. Who are they? Widows, orphans, immigrants, or strangers, and the poor. The poor, right? Those four. Become an advocate for them. Um, Understand the challenges that they face. Educate yourself. Learn their names. Learn their stories. Some of our church members attended a forum Uh, at uh, the Immigration Resource Center of San Gabriel Valley, which is a ministry of uh, Mountside Communion, one of our sister Nazarene churches. This is their mission. I'm so proud that this is one of our sister churches, not only like 20 minutes from here, that started this. The Immigration Resource Center exists to support the immigrant population in San Gabriel Valley by providing quality, low-cost immigration legal services and referral services that consider the needs of the whole person. These services offer an affordable way for local, foreign-born, non-U.S. citizens to comply with immigration law and contribute to the ability of individuals to provide for their, themselves and their families. So instead of saying, we're going to deport them all, we're saying, we're going to help you. We're going to help you comply. And some of these laws are so incredibly difficult. It used to be w- way back on the Ellis Island days when people used to immigrate here in mass droves and come in on the boat and they see the Statue of Liberty coming to Ellis Island. You, the immigration process was sit down, talk to somebody for a couple hours, stamp, and in you go. Now you have to wait in some cases 22 years while a family member is in this country and you're trying to also join them. So families, The laws are completely different now. Right? So we, So support, things like that get educated. And then lastly, I urge you to read this book. It's called Welp- Welcoming the Stranger, right here. Welcoming the Stranger, uh, Justice, Compassion, and Truth in the immigrant, Immigration Debate. Bill Hybels, pastor of Willow Creek Church, says every Christian seeking an informed biblical response to this urgent issue should read this book. It is phenomenal. It is excellent. So I want to introduce you to get out more. I want to encourage you to get out more. And as we reintroduce ourselves to our communities, I pray that we represent our king. Tame your tongue. Think about what you say. Your words matter. Because in Christ, there is no Jew or Greek, no Asian or Hispanic or Arab. We who were once strangers, we who once who were strangers and aliens have been welcomed into the kingdom of God through the shed blood of Christ. And so I pray that we will be known as a people of justice. I pray that we are the most courageous, the most compassionate people on the planet. And when people are saying, turn them away, we are the ones who are saying, let them in. Let them in. To the point where people are saying, you're crazy. We can't let them all in. Let them in. Let them in. They are fleeing from persecution we can't even fathom. Let's pray. Lord, it just... I am baffled. I do not understand how people who follow Christ... can turn away people in need because they are afraid for their own safety. And the fear is not even reasonable. The statistics just don't bear that out. Why are we so afraid? It doesn't make any sense to me. God, I'm just speaking to you as your son. Father, I don't get it. Help us, God, to be courageous people who believe the gospel, who show radical compassion that is baffling to the world. It doesn't even make sense. Forgive us if our hearts have become hardened. Help us to choose our words carefully, but not be afraid to speak truth about who you are and the kind of world that you are calling us to bring about. We love you, God. Help us to avoid the pettiness of politics, but to be courageous enough to stand up for the dignity of people because you love them, and so must we. In Jesus' name.